Hello, everyone. I'm Naya Swami Asha, and we're continuing with our class on the essence of self-realization. <coughs> I wear, as you well know, excuse me a moment. <coughs> as you all know from watching these videos, I'm always dressed in this color, Naya Swami blue. And once I took this vow, which was in 2009 now, I just decided everything has to be a color, so it might as well be blue. So you notice I drink out of a blue mug. You may not realize I also have a blue purse and a blue computer bag and blue shoes and blue socks when I need them and a blue sweater. And I was out having a cup of coffee and I was reading a blue book. <laughs> and I wondered if people would think that I just go to the bookstores and just shop according to color. But uh, it amused me. It was one of those sort of quiet chuckles that I had all by myself that I don't think anybody else really shared. But now every time I look at this copy, that's what I think about. So, friends, today we are on chapter 7, and the, excuse me, chapter 6, and the subject is the law of life. It's a very interesting um, chapter title in itself, and Master goes through, as we'll go through, and really talks about it from that point of view. There's a kind of um, inherent rebellion that many people have for a very long time at the very idea that there are, well, that there are rules, and that, and that not all rules are subject to just our opinion about them. In the Festival of Light, Swamiji um, has this story about a little bird, and it's an allegory of the soul's long journey away from its home in God. And the first stage is the mission, in which God sends us out into this world. And this is an allegory, not a literal story, so we can't exactly draw the parallels to philosophical fact. But the soul is sent out, and it has a mission to be fruitful, to multiply, and whatever it acquires to share with others. And the little bird starts out very dutifully, but then it gets involved in the excitement of being on its own, of flapping its wings, of having new experiences. And it begins to feel that the purpose of life is not really to share generously what I have with others, but to enjoy for myself, to gather, to gain. And in fact, the little bird in the Festival of Light says, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? And we've always had a lot of fun with that line because, of course, you can pull it completely out of context and say, as Swami says in the Festival of Light, when, for example, one receives a big plate of cookies as a gift and there are other people in the room looking hungrily at those cookies, one can hold the cookies and say, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? And then take those cookies off and share them not at all with anyone. This is the principle even the devil can quote the scripture, meaning if you take it out of context, it won't make any sense at all. And that one is particularly sweet for misunderstanding. I was, uh, uh, I was remembering once a little child, you know, parents love to think that their small children have great spiritual scars and are great saints just waiting to be awakened as they grow older. And there was this little child, she was about two, maybe three, sitting on her mother's lap. And she was charming everyone in the room by singing, um, Lord, I am thine, I am thine, I am thine. Lord, I am thine, I am thine. And their little lisping, sort of half-toony voice like that. And then all of a sudden, she saw something she wanted, and she started saying, mine, 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 mine. <laughs> Just exactly the same energy. Well. Uh, the little child acts out in just a couple of minutes the whole allegory of the bird. And that stage where the bird says, you know, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? I know God told me that my fulfillment would come through generosity and sharing with others, but I'm not really so sure that my experience supports that. And so the bird enters into what is called the second stage, which is called the revolt. And even though, as the Festival of Light says, repeatedly the bird lost everything he had, he still held on to this thought that I'm going to define it for myself 
And the experience I'm having now is much more true than this overarching reality. And then the allegory continues, and finally the bird suffers enough, and it loses enough times. It, it tries out its own version of truth, and its own experience teaches it that this doesn't really work. And at some point, after a time, and we do not know how long that is, because the soul's journey, the soul's long journey, away from its home in God and returning back to the infinite is indeed a long one. After a time, it occurs to the tiny bird that this is not working. And so then the bird enters the third stage, which is called the quest. And that's really a very deeply important um, part of it. Because it's not that the bird goes from the revolt to realization. It's not like he rebels against the um, strictures that have been placed on him, he feels, by God or by circumstance into a complete realization. He goes into the stage which is called the quest. And during the quest, the bird wants to know what's true. All of a sudden, instead of declaring what's true, the bird becomes open to paying attention to the wisdom of the elders and the consistent evidence of his own experience. And that's where all of us are living. We're living mostly between the revolt and the quest. And the fourth stage is described as the state of a master, in which we recognize that we live, that our joy is the joy of others, and we live for the welfare and the well-being of all. And that fourth stage is called the redemption. Here then is the fourth and last stage in the soul's long journey, the redemption. I offer the little light that is in me into thy infinite light of bliss. Now, this chapter is called The Law of Life, and it deals with that um, reality between um, not really wanting to believe that the immediate evidence of our senses cannot be relied upon, but that we have to look at the long rhythm um, freedom of the soul. Now, almost all religious traditions impose upon people um, limitations on their behavior. And in fact, interestingly, you know, the, in, in the Kali Yuga times, the last centuries that we've come out of, most particularly on the Christian Catholic side of things, um, there's been a lot of emphasis on hell and damnation. Swamiji often talks about the uh, picture on the Sistine Chapel, uh, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that was painted by Michelangelo, and it's God creating man, and then it's also God condemning man to hell. And Swamiji sort of talks about how much energy he gleefully devoted to God condemning men to hell, and in fact, some of the faces of the um, the devil's captives down there were said to be the faces of Michelangelo's enemies. <laughs> that he happily consigned them as he painted all the people he didn't like. He consigned them to hell. There's a cartoon that I saw that's completely silly, and it's it's hell and the devil. As you see, all these people and they're in the fiery furnaces and they're they're being forced to do slave labor and they're struggling and then there's one guy and he's pushing a wheelbarrow and you can see he's whistling a happy tune as he goes and the devil saying to one of his minions no matter what we do he just doesn't get the point <laughs> i mean it's not a yogic cartoon but it's just telling you how silly this whole thing is well in any case there was a lot of emphasis on if you don't then you'll go to hell and I was impressed when I was reading the life of Teresa of Avila, just sort of how intense this thought was. When she was a little child, of course, she grew up to be a great mystical saint. And mystical meaning she, she communed with God. She didn't merely follow the guidelines, but she actually transcended her ego and really merged into infinite consciousness. Master said, that those of us who follow the path of self-realization, as he put it, he said, should not, uh, should study 
uh, some of the saints, but only the saints he described who are in our line. And that might have had a more um, direct meaning in terms of the relationship of those saints to this particular line of gurus. Uh, St. Teresa is one, St. Teresa um, of Avila, and St. Francis, and others of our line, Master said. He didn't make the list longer. But the characteristics of both of those were was they weren't merely obedient uh, monastics of the church. They actually communed with God. And they, they fulfilled the intention of those uh, guidelines. They didn't just fulfill the letter of them, they fulfilled the purpose of them, which was to uh, leave the limiting conditions behind and go into infinite consciousness. Well, when Teresa of Avila was just a child, she reasoned it out. And she knew from, because she was a good daughter of the church at that time, she knew that uh, there was this life and it was just a moment, and then there was an eternity in heaven or hell. Of course, when she um, began to commune with God, she began to understand it differently. Uh, an eternity in hell is completely inconsistent with an unconditionally loving God, but I'm not going to go into that in great detail. But she reasoned it out, and she also knew that if you were a martyr for God, if you willingly gave up your life in the service of God, um, then you could go to heaven for certain. So as a young child, she uh, corralled one of her brothers to going with her, and they just set out down the road, and the way you got martyred in those days was you went and found the Moors, and you declared yourself to be a Christian to the Moors, and then the Moors would uh, cheerfully cut off your head, and then you would be a martyr, and then it would be all settled. So Teresa figured that, you know, a few decades on this planet weren't worth it compared to an eternity in heaven. So she got her brother, and they just set off down the road in search of the Moors. I mean, it was very logical, really, when you think about it, um, and not unreasonable given the theology. Of course, her parents noticed their absence, and galloped off on their horses and found them and forced them to come home again, much to Teresa's much, uh, great disappointment. Um, she had it all worked out. And in the end, of course, she left a worldly life and became a nun and became a great saint. Now, the whole point of there being a law of life, and uh, it, in one of the nine sections we have today, uh, Master talks about the fact that um, the injunctions, I was starting to say, the injunctions that all religions and all scriptures give us, I mean, we, we tend to have this thought in our mind that God wants us to be miserable. And this is um, corroborated by the wrong emphasis that um, many uh, Christian uh, or Catholic uh, groups um, take on the, on the life of Jesus. We, the emphasis is on how much he suffered, and they have extrapolated from that that the more we suffer, the more pleasing we are to God. And it's, it's really missing the point. It's missing the point of Jesus' life itself because the life of Jesus was one of, of enormous triumph. I was, um, you know, the, the image of Jesus crucified on the cross, for those who are not raised on it and never have a, a reason to question it, is really very grim. And I was raised Jewish, so I never had to look at it. I didn't grow up seeing it as a child. Uh, but I was in Vienna um, a number of years ago. David and I were just on a holiday there. And the famous Vienna Boys Choir would, would sing at Catholic Mass on Sunday morning at a particular church. And it was, well, I have to say it very frankly, it was a cheaper way of hearing them sing than it was actually buying a ticket to a concert. So I'm perfectly amenable to going to a Catholic church. I think the rituals are beautiful. And uh, the Mass is really a sacred, uh, ma uh, miraculous occurrence. So I was very happy to be there. And there, I don't know exactly who, who was responsible, but there was a crucifix there that was entirely different than any I had ever seen before. It had Jesus with his arms outstretched, as it always is, but he wasn't hanging from the cross. You know, often the pictures have him with his head down and, you know, everything about him is miserable. And this one, 
he had his arms outstretched, he had his head up, and he was looking, you know, outward and upward. And it, it was really more like he, he had placed himself on the cross rather than that he had been forced onto the cross. And of course, it was just a, a perfect sort of shifting of that image. Because yes, Jesus did willingly sacrifice his physical body and take on the disciple of his uh, the karma of his disciples and advance them greatly spiritually by doing it. They call that the forgiveness of sin and all sorts of things like that. But he wasn't coerced into doing it. And it was a sacrifice that he willingly made, joyously made. And to take it even farther, you know, whether a master actually even experiences his physical body is something he has control over. So yes, the physical body, as a human body, was subjected to a great deal of unpleasantness. There's no doubt about it. But whether or not Jesus um, focused his, his infinite consciousness on the physical sensations of that one body, or whether those sensations were part of the, the infinite reality of which he was conscious, was something it was completely within his control. And he, he may have, to an extent, chosen to enter into that experience, but so differently. And I've always appreciated that, that image. And ever since, whenever I think of Jesus being crucified, I think of that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman cohort um, came to arrest him. And instead of shrinking back, as is natural for most people to do when faced with something difficult in front of them, most of us, when we see difficult karma coming, we want to make ourselves small enough or hide under the chair. But Jesus stepped forward and said, I am the one you were seeking. And they describe in the Bible how the force of his stepping into that karma was so great that the soldiers actually fell backward to the ground. And even the meaning of if, one, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other, is the same meaning. Instead of shrinking, from what God and your karma is giving you, step into it. Embrace it with courage. And that's really the way to overcome it. It's not about the more I suffer, the more God will be pleased. God does not want us to suffer at all. But there is a law of life. And, and that's, it's the way we're made. And as Master often puts it, God can't break his own laws. I mean, think of it like this. Think of a candle flame, and Master writes about this. Think of a candle flame. If you put your finger in that candle flame, your, your skin is not uh, made to be able to endure that without pain. And, and God wants us to suffer. He wants us to understand that if we put our, our relatively fragile bodies too close to fire, too close to heat, oh, they'll get injured. And our lives may even be prematurely ended or our health will be compromised. So he teaches us. And every little child has to learn the lesson of hot. And mother has to decide whether to let him burn himself a little. You know, whether to keep him from ever having that experience or letting him learn. Oh, this is hot. And then after that he knows. Oh, don't touch that. That's hot. Now, we don't rebel against that. I mean, yes, it's possible to transcend all physical conditions. It sort of is in the back of my mind. But as, as ordinary human beings in the ordinary course of light, life, we take it for granted. I don't want to put my hand into the fire because the experience will be unpleasant. It's, there's no mystery there. Now, everything else um, that ends up being the law of life about how we have to behave is... Is, is no more arbitrary than putting your hand in fire and having it burned, but it isn't as obvious. And that's where the difficulty comes. And so, so uh, Master starts out in this particular chapter on the law of life by saying that in order to understand what the laws of life are, we have to understand where we come from, where we're going, you know, what is the basic goal of life. And he says very interestingly, through the eyes of worldly people, and what he means when he says worldly people is people who take their meaning from the material world around them, who, who don't think about a reality 
transcending that, but just take their values and their definition from what the senses see. And really, that's how almost everyone lives. What house do you have? Who are you married to? What are your children doing? What am I going to wear today? How am I going to keep myself looking younger? You know, what kind of car do you drive? Just everything. How much money do you have in the bank? It's just like all the things of this world just stack up, and that's the definition of life. And Swamiji says that to worldly people, life is infinitely complex, he says, because there are countless desires to be fulfilled, and we can seek fulfillment in innumerable ways. And so there's always something else to want. That's why people who, well, that's why that's why we always keep reincarnating again. There's always something new to want. And once we start going down that row, um, we have this house, we have that house, we travel to this country, we have this pair of shoes, we need another pair of shoes, um, we have these friends, we need other friends. They're just You can just spin it out and it goes on almost without end. But so, uh, Master also tells us that there are, behind that seeming complexity, there are, there are certain universal basic realities that every human being shares. And he enumerates them out this way. He said, um, you know, everyone wants to exist. Everyone wants to uh, be conscious, to be aware. We, we fear being obliterated. He said, but it's not enough. And, and Darwin called that the, the need to survive. You know, the, the instinctive self-protection that causes us to want to continue our existence. It's a, a fascinating thing how, how hard people will fight to stay alive. You know, how, what kind of conditions people will endure. We have an, uh, an intuitive understanding that our life has value. We may not understand what that value really is, but it's instinctive within us to protect it. But Master goes on to explain that people don't want merely to exist. We don't want to just exist in a coma. Nobody um, looks at someone who may have been injured to the point of becoming a breathing, in, entering a, what they call medically a permanent vegetative state. Nobody thinks that that's a desirable thing. We don't want to exist at, at all costs. We also want to have awareness. We want to be able to experience our own life. But even just experience and being conscious of our own continuing existence is not enough because if the pain of our existence is too great, then we may long for death instead. So what we want is continued existence with awareness, but we want that awareness not to be of pain, but, but of, of happiness uh, and in truth of bliss. Now this brings us to what is really the most exquisite definition of God that there is, first proposed by Adi Shankaracharya and Master uh, amended it slightly, which is the word Satchid Ananda, which Master described as ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And Master says that we can speak of God as light or as sound or as wisdom, but Defining God as ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss gives us a sense of, of where we are going. And when we then speak about realizing God or uniting our consciousness with God, um, knowing ourselves as divine, when you think of it as Satchitananda, then it, it speaks to our heart. And it, it gives us a goal that all of us um, understand why we would want to have that. No fear of death, no shadow of pain, and the ability always to um, enjoy um, both of those realities. And so um, Master writes that we get confused and get drawn into all these other um, cul-de-sacs, really, of promised fulfillment that don't, in the end, really bring us what we want because we've lost touch with that basic satchitananda. And there's another factor to it, too, which is um, we deeply know in our own hearts that this is our destiny. Now, as we grow wiser, we no longer fear death, for example, because we know 
how it serves us in the greater picture. But nonetheless, we don't, we don't desire to go unconscious. And we definitely rebel uh, when we experience pain. And we begin to sort of try to find a way in our life to minimize pain and to bring our, into our lives more joy. This is the first of the fundamental laws of life, that this is what everybody wants. You take something as unsophisticated as a worm, and if you poke it with something sharp, it will make an effort to get away. Because it knows that here comes pain and I don't want to have it. It's all creatures, all beings, uh, want to experience bliss and want to escape pain. So that's the... um, the first premise of the law of life. And then what follows is, well, how do we do that? And I was talking a little while ago about the bird, and the bird begins to feel that there's a great deal of pleasure in enjoying what I define as myself. And this is what worldly people begin to experience. They see themselves as separate from a greater reality. And nowadays, it's almost, uh, it's almost considered a virtue to have a certain callous disregard for the welfare of others. You know, we negotiate hard, we get what we want, we make our place in this world, and we have to be tough enough not to care what happens to other people. And it's, um, it's the second stage of the soul's long journey. It's the revolt. What else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself and to get more of it? But the difficulty that comes to us is that it's not the way that we are made. If we callously disregard the needs and the welfare of others, then others have an annoying way of callously disregarding our needs and our welfare. Um, The Bible puts it very simply, As ye sow, so shall ye reap. And that is simply the law of karma as cause and effect as it pertains to human life. And it's not as if it's so obvious unless you have been through the cycle enough times that the pattern has begun to emerge. I mean, many people work really hard to get very wealthy or to get great power, and then they find toward the end of their lives that it it just didn't work for them the way they expected it to work. I was uh, uh, just sitting actually in a nail salon having my nails done not too long ago. and The woman asked me if I was retired, which was sort of a question that startled me a little bit because my life model is Swami Kriyananda, who wrote some of his best books in the last months of his 86 years. And from the time he met Master until virtually his last breath, he was serving his guru and doing what he could to bring these teachings to the world. So the idea of retirement just doesn't really strike me as something I would think about. But of course, looking objectively, I am of an age when retirement might be in the cards. And I just smiled and said, no, there was no point in explaining. But I was just looking around the place I was in, and there was a woman across from me and she may have been my own age. I, I hesitate now to try to guess the ages of people because I can be so far off. It, it, it's a very interesting fact. I'm just going to digress for a minute here, but it's highly relevant. Um, because the people at Ananda and the people who do Kriya and who meditate uh, identify more with the energy that flows through us rather than the physical body that we carry around as the vehicle for that energy to flow through. And of course, the energy itself has no age. And the energy itself is ever new. And so even though I can easily tell you what year I was born and how old I am, I I don't define myself by that because I'm thinking more about the energy that's flowing through. An interesting fact I noticed... Um, have noticed often whenever you see a choir of Ananda singers, if you look closely, you can see, well, some of them have gray hair, some of them 
Their faces clearly show that they've been living in those faces for a number of decades, and some of them are clearly quite young, and their skin is smooth, and their whole demeanor is indicative of just a 20-something or so. But as soon as they start to sing, it's very hard to tell what anybody's age is. Even when right in front of you, the woman in the first row is tottering and being supported by the person next to her, still when you just look at them sing, they all become the vibration of the music. And they, their, their physical bodies actually look different. And more than that, their consciousness is changed by that. But people who don't have an understanding of the non-material dimension of life, but just exist in their bodies with the thought that this is all there is, then their bodies really look really different. They age uh, much faster and they, they look their age because they identify with it. That's the only way I can put it. So I was sitting in the shop and I just looked across at the woman on the other side and as I was saying, I, I suspect we were very close to the same number of years in our body. But she looked just worn out. That was the only way I could think of it. She just had no light. She had no ever-newness about her. And I suspected, both from her conversation and her demeanor, that this was probably the highlight of her day. You know, that she, I mean, I was just fitting it in because I needed a break. But for her, I could see it was a main activity. And my heart hurt for her because she didn't have that joyful happiness in her eyes. She didn't have it in her voice. She didn't have it in her conversation. Um, she had not understood the law of life and it had caught up with her. Sometimes I remember a couple of times particularly, I've been in the supermarket and I've seen a mother and daughter shopping together. Um, and in these cases that I'm speaking of, um, the mother had not kept herself young. You know, her body had um, become, uh, what, what, what's exactly the word? She, she'd let herself go is the only way I can think of it. I know that's an expression that people use about women, but it, sometimes it's really true. It's not just a question of whether your body has rounded out when you've gotten older or your hair has turned gray. It's a kind of giving up. And I would see the mother and the daughter, and the daughter still had all that vitality of being really young. That sort of, um, the body is new, and the character has not made an impression on the body yet. And for the mother, the character and the attitude had made a, a very strong impression on the body. And you could see that the daughter believed she would never become her mother. But unfortunately, I could see that the character of the daughter was exactly like her mother's. And that it was just going to happen. And these are the, the laws that Master talks about. You know, the spiritual injunctions, he says it, against um, attachment, against anger, against greed, against lust, against uh, taking advantage of your neighbor. Because when you do those things, you dissipate your life force and you do not sow the seeds of happiness. You do not sow the seeds of fulfillment. And this is where all of these um, ideas come from. And it's not God punishing us or trying to make it no fun for us. It's God telling us, look, if you behave in these certain ways, then the result of that will not be what you want. It's, it's an impossible thing I found to explain to people. Because the only thing that tells you is either actual experience in this life or the or smriti, which is uh, the, the remembered experience, the soul memory of past lives. You know, there are certain people who will freely, oh, if I fall in love with this married man or if I just have a, a, a desire for this married man, I'll just take him from his wife. What difference does it make? But if one remembers the guilt and the shame and the unhappiness and the abandonment that may come from such a careless action, then all of a sudden it's not that you have to hear the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. It's just the very thought of doing it 
brings with it, with the whatever momentary rush of pleasure may um, tantalize you, you also simultaneously remember that that path does not lead to fulfillment. I had a friend talking to me, and she was talking about the fact that, let me think, how her her husband is a, was a philanderer. Yes, exactly. Her husband was a philanderer. He was a, a womanizer. It was almost an open secret. And she was terribly unhappy about that, and no amount of effort on her part could change his behavior. And she lived in a culture and in a family where it was not so easy to break the marriage apart, plus there were children and other things to consider. And she had the intuition, which was confirmed by somebody who was able to read past lives, the most obvious intuition in the world, that she too, at one point, in a previous incarnation, had been a very wealthy man. And she had a very dear, he had a very dear and loving wife at that point. And as a man, he just indulged his, indulged his appetites and paid no attention to her misery. And he very simply, he got, he got to experience it. He got to be the abandoned woman, and he got to feel the anger and the helpless humiliation of that position. Now, whether we have to go through many incarnations or whether the lessons catch up with us really quickly, sooner or later we discover that certain attitudes bring certain results. If we're unkind to people, people are unkind to us. If we're always trying to get power over others, a very simple thing happens. People try to get power over us. And when that moment comes, they're ruthless, if we have been ruthless. And then all of a sudden we're so outraged. But this is the revolt that we can define morality any way we want. You know, it's interesting. Um, Swamiji, in, back in the 60s and the 70s, when sexual morality was just completely disintegrating in America, and many of the young people who came to Ananda came out of that very rebellious hippie era in which um, people were just taking down all the rules. And someone asked Swamiji, as the you know, representative of a very ancient and orthodox spiritual tradition, what do you think of what they called then the sexual revolution? It was a big deal at that time. And Swami said, well, he said, I'm in favor of it, which of course was a very shocking thing for him to say. He said, not because I favor the actual experience of, of licentiousness, he said, but the value of it is this, and I, I think I, I, I misquote him when I say he favored it. He said it's not entirely a bad thing. And the point is this. People are making experience the criteria of their values. And he said if people are honest to their experience, then they will learn what actions actually bring them the fulfillment that they need. If they're not honest to their experience, they will just get to, get to try it out until they discover it. But licentious living destroys your health, destroys your peace of mind, it destroys the harmony of your home. It many, many things that you lose for this very short-term flash of pleasure. And so, um, Master tells us that we are given the free will to try these things out. And in this particular age that we're living in, this is Kali Yuga shifting into Dwapara, and we're in early Dwapara Yuga, what's happened is that the rigidity of these um, scriptural prohibitions um, just doesn't hold anymore. You know, it's hard for us to believe that we'll be eternally damned if we cross some little line that has been laid out by one particular church. We know that many different spiritual paths have all different injunctions and all different rules and all different punishments and rewards laid out to us. And it's very hard for us to live in the same way. And also, there's a, a new understanding of, and this is the positive side, of a certain intimacy with God. And Master particularly brought the message of God is our Divine Mother. And he brought that message because he wanted us to understand that it, it's not a cruel and heartless deity that demands certain things of us, but it's our own mother 
trying to coax us into the happiness she, she wants to see for us because of her unconditional love for us. And in fact, Master writes in one of, his, um, one of the entries in this particular chapter, um, a man objected when he heard Master say that joy was the, uh, the goal of all spiritual life. And he thought it was undignified. He thought that God was too grand and awe-inspiring. And, and Master writes there, he said, God is not pleased when we um, make everything just so before we pray, when we write out our prayers in just the right way, and when we sit solemnly in church and it's our duty to go to church and it's our duty to be God-fearing, which is the phrase. Master said, this is not pleasing to God. God wants us to be intimate and wants us to be like little children. And the joy that he's asking of us is this complete freedom of being a child. There's a, a beautiful story told to me by Hare Krishna Ghosh about his sister. And you've heard me say it again before, some of you, but it's such a beautiful story. Um, this is Master's family in Calcutta. And Master left in 1920, and he didn't return to India until 1936, and then he only stayed for a little more than a year. And that was the only time he went back to India from the time he left. And when he went to his childhood home at 4 Garpar Road in Calcutta, the house belonged now to his younger brother, Sananda. And uh, Sananda had um, two children, and Hare Krishna was one, and Shefli, his sister, was the other. There had been a third, but that boy... Um, that man, unfortunately, um, died early. But when Master came, Shefley was three years old. And she was totally entranced by him. I mean, he was just so full of love and of joy. Her, in her childlike simplicity, she just rushed to be with him. And there was no thought in her mind that Master would not return her love or that her attention to him was not entirely welcome. Now, an adult person begins to think, maybe I'm not worthy, I've made these mistakes, these are the things that I've done, you know, I have to become organized. When I start meditating more, then I can face the guru, or whatever we think, we put up all these conditions. But she was just a little child, and she wanted to be close to him. And wherever, whenever he came into the room, she would rush to him, climb into his lap, hold on to his leg, move about the room with him, and just refused to be separated from him. And that's why when in the Bible, when they brought children to be blessed by Jesus, because parents always want their children to be blessed, so the mothers and the fathers were bringing their children to Jesus. They were crowding in upon him. Bless my son, bless my daughter. And some of the disciples thought this was unseemly and a disturbance to the master, and they tried to keep the mothers and the children back. And Jesus said, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And don't misunderstand, children are not innocent. If you die a good person, you'll be born a good child. If you die a horrible person, even if you're a cute little child, you still have all that horribleness in you, and it'll just take time before you get enough power and freedom to express it. But death does not erase your karma. It gives you a breather from it. And childhood gives you a breather from it. But what he really meant was that expectation of love and of intimacy that children have and that childlike freedom. But children also, you see, they're saved from adult temptations. You know, they, they, they both live innocently and they love innocently. And there's this wonderful sequence of evolution that, that all souls go through, that great saints are often very, very childlike. But they're not childish. There's a huge difference. It's the childlike quality of understanding the law of life and living by it. Swamiji once made an interesting comment because there's so much talk about accepting yourself and loving yourself. And Swamiji just said once, well, you can't love, you know, let me, let me think how he put it, first of all. He said, you just can't love yourself helter-skelter. There's many things about you that aren't at all lovable. And it was just sort of putting the myth to this idea that there is no law of life. 
that we can just declare a certain way. And then he said, the only way to true self-acceptance, he said, is to have a clear, uh, to have a clear conscience. In other words, to live according to, to how the soul wants to live. Now, bear in mind, the law of life is directional. And we have to be sincere according to what we understand. We can say that this is happiness producing, this is misery producing, but until we know it, we don't know it. And a loving mother, you see, and this is where having that intimate relationship with God, especially as a mother, opens the door for us spiritually. Because a mother recognizes that the child has to go through many stages. And the mother with children of many different ages doesn't treat her four-year-old and doesn't have the same expectations of her four-year-old child that she would have of her 16-year-old. When you're 16, by then you have a certain maturity and you need the mother will, the loving mother will expect you to act on that maturity. When you're four years old, you have a certain maturity and the mother will expect you to act on that maturity and won't expect you to know more than you know. And so even though there are these laws of life, these um, ways of being that are happiness producing and these ways of being that lead us to more suffering, it's directional. And this is one of the wonderful contributions that Swamiji has given us to understanding these teachings is that it depends on where you're standing, what your next step is. Somebody who's far more advanced than you if they acted as you acted, they would be going backward. When the 16-year-old acts like a 4-year-old, it's not acceptable anymore. But when the 4-year-old acts like a 4-year-old, he gets complimented for doing 4-year-old things because that is who he's become. He's fulfilling the law of life by being who he is and learning from that experience and listening to his mother. And so in our life as we go through and, and we discover that we're suffering because this is also, in, and Master deals with this, why does God allow us to suffer? And Master tries to explain it to us. It's not God who makes us suffer. It's that when we transgress the law, if we put our hands into a candle flame, if we overindulge and behave as if the physical body were indestructible and the laws of health and well-being and self-restraint don't apply, and then that body breaks down, it's not God's fault. If we're so overcome by all of our passions and our emotions that we have no uh, nobility in our relations with others and we either attract to us people of equally crass nature or drive out of our lives those of noble character and find ourselves lost and alone, that's not God's fault. It's just the law of life. And this is the way creation is made. And we, when we understand that the mother loves us, and you know, it's even the child doesn't always understand that the mother loves us. And that's something that we have to come to slowly. And just as, you know, it's, it's sort of a joke that when a child moves between the age of 18 and 21 or 24, he sometimes remarks how remarkably more intelligent his parents became over those six years. But what's actually happened is he's begun to understand what was there all the time. And if it can happen so obviously in human relationships, that's what happens to us in our divine relationship. When we begin to conform our energy um, to the, the basic principles of right living, um, we begin to discover a freedom in that. You know, we think freedom is the ability to indulge ourselves in any direction that we want, but that fulfillment is so ephemeral and um, so dependent on factors beyond our control that we quickly discover that far from being free when we constantly indulge our appetites, we actually become, well, the simple word is a slave to those appetites. We become addicted to 
foods that are wrong for us. We can literally become addicted to drugs or to alcohol. We can certainly become addicted to sensuality or to sloth or whatever it might be. And only when we gradually uh, begin to live in the way that we are made do we begin to realize that the satisfaction of that is so much deeper. And that's the law of life that God wants us to understand. Um, Let me see here. Because then, you see, when we have self-mastery, we can begin to appreciate that uh, we can move through this world with complete freedom. Um, I've often discussed with people, just as a way of understanding, forget even God and spirituality, what is the biggest obstacle to our own happiness, to our own success, to the achievement of our own dreams and desires? It's always ourselves. It's that we don't know how to concentrate or we allow our emotions, we become afraid or we become angry and we lose energy and anger, whatever it might be. I remember I, I used to be a much more emotional person than I am now. And I remember once I was going to cry about something. And just before the tears came, I thought to myself, you know, crying is so exhausting. And I'll just, at the end of this cry, I'll just be so tired, it's going to take me half the day to recover. And I am going to recover, and I am going to put this behind me. Let me just not bother. And so we begin to get self-mastery. We begin to realize, I could get angry about this, but what will it serve? I could express myself in a very unkind way, but what will it serve? I could be afraid of success or failure, but what will it serve? And we begin to, of our own experience, harmonize ourselves with these divine principles and realize that that's what we're really looking for. Master answers one more question about the law of life, which I want to touch on before Um, I go to a question that's been offered to us today. Some people feel that, and this is a sort of a tricky one, that because so many people suffer in the world that we, that no one should be happy. That it's, it's a lack of compassion to be happy in the face of other people's suffering. Master answers that in such a simple and such a dynamic way, which is that bliss is the antidote to suffering. And what the great saints demonstrate for us in the last years of Swamiji's life, he he was so overflowing with bliss that anyone who came near him was uplifted into that blissful state. And when you enter into that blissful state, which is your own nature, all suffering stops. It just you it they're they're contradictory. One is the antidote to the other. And as spiritual people, the more we live in such a way as to bring ourselves into a state of divine, blissful understanding, the more we can actually um, serve those who are suffering by drawing them, too, into the uh, dissolution of suffering for all time. I have a couple of questions today, so let me take them now. I think this is a question more than a comment. Uh, The person is wondering uh, if souls who refuse God uh, if they will be damned eternally. And he quotes Master as saying, uh, talking about gloomy hell planes where uh, wicked people go after death. Whoa. <laughs> well, the uh, Master speaks of, I mean, there are many astral worlds. Not all astral worlds are beautiful. And although most people who speak of death and return talk about how beautiful the after-death state is, a few have written about how awful it can be if you're a terrible person. One man in particular was a, a, an avowed atheist and did his best to turn everyone against God. And when he died, he saw that how much misery he'd created by taking away hope. And he had to experience that hopeless state. This was a death in return because he, he went into the, the hopeless, pointless, meaninglessness uh, feeling that he had created in so many others. And when he came back, he completely repudiated all of that because he could see there was a far greater reality and he was not serving it. He lost his professional position and his family as a result of that. But he was still a far happier man because of it. But it's not eternal. To not understand the law of life and the nature of God is just a misunderstanding. Because 
no matter what we think, you see, the truth is still there. No matter how much you declare, I am not part of God, even if you are, you still are. And sooner or later, and if you want to be, if you want it to be, it will be later, you will reap the consequences of your wrong thinking, and the revolt will gradually lead to the quest. And yes, you, when, when the physical body is removed, the way Swamiji describes it, all feelings are intensified. And if you've been evil, if you've been cruel, if you've been greedy, if you've broken the law of life in many ways, you will reap what you sow. And you will go to very unpleasant states. And you will be born again into very unpleasant conditions. And that may happen for a very long time until, by your own suffering, you release your hold on your wrong ideas and begin to ask a question. Lord, what is really going on here? I mean, there's two ways to say, what is going on here? God, what is going on here? Or else you can say, God, what is going on here? And one is the revolt and one is the quest. And everybody learns eventually. Think of your own life. I mean, look at the microcosm. Generally speaking, when things didn't go well and you suffered, you began to think about another way to do it. And that just expands out literally to infinity. But no one is damned forever. You can't be. We are all a part of God. And we will all get it right sooner or later. As Swamiji said to us once, why wait a few million years? You're going to learn it sooner or later. Why wait a few million years? And why wait? It's really up to us. Now, there was another question. There are more questions. Can you repeat my question? Uh-huh. Uh, the person did not understand what you meant by one can get addicted to sensuality. Oh my gosh. The person does not understand how you can get addicted to sensuality? Well, let's see. If you have a big bowl of ice cream and it tastes so delicious, and the next night you want another one, and then another one and another one, if you begin to discover, as, as uh, you know, young adults do, that sex is a really a very pleasurable experience, or uh, being admired by other people um, is very pleasurable. I mean, uh, women sometimes enjoy the fact that they can have a certain power over men if they use their magnetism in that way. We get addicted to that because it's pleasurable for us. It makes us feel important. It gives us a momentary, um, a temporary, but sometimes an intensely pleasurable experience. And we begin to to want that experience over and over again. And we don't see the implications of it. I mean, a person will smoke a, a pipe or cigarettes and not realize that he's contaminating his lungs. He enjoys the high of it. He enjoys the ego pleasure of it or the ice cream or any number of things. I mean, addict is the only way to say it because it's against our best interest to do it and we can't help ourselves. Maybe it's not exactly the right word, but... Um, we get, we get habituated and attached to the pleasures that the body can give us. And don't, don't misunderstand. It's not that, that, that it's evil or sinful. It's just if we overindulge and lose touch with more subtle levels of reality, um, then it does not serve us. It's, uh, but if you're four, you have to be four. If you're spiritually four, you can't be 16. Most people marry, most people have sexual relationships, most people enjoy a good, a good meal. Um, many of us do things that are not in our highest interest, but we are addicted to them. We can't help ourselves. But sooner or later we recognize that what we thought of as being pleasurable actually does not serve us in the long run. Did we have another question or no? Yes. Okay. When you feel yourself straying from the laws of life, what tools or process do you use to get back on track? When you feel yourself straying from the laws of life, what do you use to get back? Well, the first thing is don't hide from the truth. The first thing is just to admit it. Wow, this was not such a good idea. People spend lose incarnations because they don't have the humility or the self-honesty just to say, wow, this was a mistake. And then we have to also understand that it's just a mistake. It's not like a huge, horrible end of the world. I am now worthless and have no hope. It was just a mistake. I love to say, 
It seemed like a good idea at the time. That's my favorite strategy for self-honesty. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but now I can see it wasn't such a good idea. Once you just admit it, then that takes away 90% of the difficulty. Even if you find yourself drawn into exactly the same situation again, as soon as your center comes back to you, say, okay, that wasn't such a good idea. Let me impress upon myself that this was not such a good idea. To also realize in, in, in a most dynamic way, if you got yourself into it, you can get yourself out of it. I think of it like that. If once I was extremely far away from where I wanted to be spiritually, and I was feeling rather helpless in that reality. And then it just crossed my mind so simply, honey, a step at a time, talking to myself, a step at a time, you walked in the wrong direction, just turn around and walk back. And I did. It took a little time, it took a little effort. I'd become a little bit attached to some of my bad habits, but I just turned around and walked back. And having that just complete understanding, I got myself into this, I can get myself out of it. And the, the, another most important thing to remember is God doesn't really care. He doesn't really care. It doesn't matter if you fall a million times as long as you stand up a million and one. You know, uh, my devotee is never lost. That's what Krishna said. You're never lost. You wander, you turn around, you come home. doesn't matter how, how many times you do that or how long it takes. God is always happy to see you and is never really distant from you. And just be free in that. Bad enough that you made the error, don't make it worse by worrying about it. Just say, from this day, I'll try to do better. God bless you.